This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. This is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. Here is your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. David Berkus is a best-selling author. He's written Under New Management and The Myths of Creativity. He's an associate professor of leadership and innovation at Oral Roberts University. And his latest book is Friend of a Friend, Understanding the Hidden Networks that Can Transform Your Life and Your Career, which offers readers a new perspective on how to grow networks and build key connections, one that's based on the science of human behavior, not your standard rote networking advice. That's what we're going to be talking about in this episode. David's TED Talk has been viewed almost two million times, and he's a regular contributor to the Harvard Business Review in their digital articles site, hbr.org. Everyone Everyone needs social support and strong, diverse networks to create the kind of harmony that we're seeking among the different parts of life. David's got some wisdom on this topic, so get set now to listen and learn about how to explore the edges of your hidden network, those weak and dormant ties, in a way that's comfortable and authentic for you. It doesn't require you to attend those awkward networking events, those mixers, and that gives you the resources and the encouragement you need to persevere. David, welcome back to Work and Life. Oh, Stu, thank you so much for uh, for having me back. I, I could hear the applause. Did you not, you not hear the applause? I, could, I mean, maybe it was just in my head, but, you know, hey, if I've got that going for me, then life is good. Well, you know, it's it's all a matter of perception at some level. So you've you've written a number of important books, David. We talked last time about about one of them, but I want to focus not so much on your history, uh, but what motivated you to want to bring to us Friend of a Friend? What was the What was the motivating idea for you? Yeah, so really there were two reasons. Uh, the, the first was that I was fascinated with studies from network science. You know, researchers like Brian Uzi or the legendary people like Mark Granovetter and Ronald Burt and those folks. But the, the thing that was fascinating was also sort of puzzling, right? You're reading the, I call them the networking advice books. There's, a, there's one every like two years or so. seems like mine is the next one in that, but trying to do something a little different. Because the thing that those networking advice books always seem to be devoid of is the science of how networks actually work. You know, it, mm-hmm. advice is one person's story. And that person usually is a great story and usually is a great networker. But then, like, you read that advice, then you go to that event or you try and introduce two people, you're trying to follow the advice, and you feel weird and sleazy and inauthentic. And no wonder you feel inauthentic. You're trying to be that other person by mm. following their advice. So that's where we, this idea came from. Is what if we had something that merged the two, that didn't teach you, here's the perfect way to introduce yourself, you know, the elevator pitch, but taught you, here's how networks work, and now you can figure out what's an authentic way for you to strengthen that or grow that, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So you're teaching the 
basic theory of social capital. Yeah, no, almost exactly. We, we rely very heavily on Ronald Burt and, and his work and mm-hmm. uh, a, few, a few others in looking at not just uh, the sociological angle of social capital from the standpoint of a community, although that's part of it, but also kind of how do you as a, uh, what's a good term, social capitalist? That seems kind of weird, but this, we'll go with it. H- how do you sort of build it over time, et cetera, and when's the right time to make withdrawals and all of that? Well, you know, everyone uh, accepts the idea that you've got to develop your human capital and you've got to have a strategy for your financial capital. What we're talking about here is your social capital, which one needs a strategy for as well. Why not? Yeah, no, that's, that's exactly right. And, and you know, it, it's the kind of thing, too, that I think a lot of times we look at the people that are rich in social capital and we just get sort of jealous. And what we don't realize is, honestly, of the three, it's one of the easier ones to build over time as long as you're willing to put in the work. All right. So what what are the essential ideas? I know there's a lot in this and your book is rich with uh, a, a really digestible summary of some of the key ideas in the literature. But if you had to pick the one or two most important concepts that most people are perhaps surprised by, what would they be? So um, probably the most I like to call this the most surprising thing in the entire um, book has to deal with Kevin Bacon. And I realize that's a little confusing at first, but he's actually been the study of a real sort of network scientist like Duncan Watts have studied him. Because if you've ever played the game Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, right, Mm -hmm. you've seen that, okay, apparently he's well-connected and interconnected and you can link any actor to any other actor. Um, The truth is, if we were to rank everyone in Hollywood by how the number of connections to other actors and actresses they have, he's actually the 669th. And the lesson in that is that the network itself is so resilient that you don't have to be the number one to be able to be that linchpin. The fact that we hmm. remember Kevin is sort of, it's, it's kind of a fluke of history. It's also probably that his last name is Bacon. And I mean, that's just delicious. But it, it, the, the big lesson to me is that you really, between one or two introductions to anybody else can get mm-hmm. the ball rolling and you don't need this massive network to start to meet the people you need to meet. It's sort of like, you don't need to have Kevin Bacon's network to be connected like Kevin Bacon because Kevin Bacon doesn't have Kevin Bacon's network. Kevin Bacon doesn't have Kevin Bacon's network. There, that last part of that sentence confused me. Please it clarify. Me. It, was a lot of, it, was a, it was a lot of bacon. But you know, we, <laughs> we, we think about him like the super connected person. And in reality, mm-hmm. he's kind of just one node in this broader network. And mm-hmm. it's the network itself that's so, the social capital term is sort of resilient, um, that anybody in that community can kind of find a chain to anybody else. And right. what that I think means for the everyday person is there's no excuse. You don't have to be super connected to go do it. Everybody can begin to build this. So most people find, and I ask my, I, I teach some of this material as well in my courses on leadership and teams. And, you know, I ask people, so how do you feel about networking? And they all grimace. Why is it, let's start with that, because many people listening are thinking, ugh, networking, do I have to? What, what is it that people find so um, unctuous about it? Yeah, so I think that most people, I mean, there's one study in the book that we talk about um, from Francesca Gino, who's brilliant, that shows that networking actually makes people feel dirty, like physically dirty, aspiring to get clean. And I think a lot of it has to do with, uh, for, for many of us, the idea of just having to meet total strangers. So this would be not going through a referral network, um, not reengaging what we call a weak tie, someone you know, but you don't know that well, but like going to the thing where you meet the total strangers is what most people think about when they think about networking. And that's already a very risky thing, right? Especially unless you're the top percentile of extroverted, that's not exactly a fun environment. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the other thing 
is that most of us are, we go to those events because we have sort of this sense of uh, instrumentality that needs to happen. It needs mm-hmm. to be beneficial for both of us right off the bat, or one of the two people in the conversation will start doing that, looking around the room for a more useful person thing. Mm-hmm. But I think we've all been on the receiving end of that. And truthfully, I think we've unknowingly been on the giving end of that sometimes too, because we've been so focused on you know, who is this person? What's the work reason for the connection? Mm-hmm. And I think that leaves a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths to where they just they don't want to do it a- again. And the good news, I mean, you know this. Well, it's because you news. feel like you're being used or you're using other people. It's exactly. All, the instrumentality of it makes you feel like you're being selfish and manipulative, and nobody wants to feel that way. Right. No, I totally agree. And, you know, the, the good news is that uh, from a lot of the research supports that those networking mixers that make you feel dirty anyway aren't really all that effective. So you can kind of skip most of those. Um, but also that as you start to broaden out and just ignore the instrumentality and trust that social capital will build over time, you build more authentic connections. They turn out to be more useful connections, et cetera. I mean, who would have thought being legitimately interested in people would turn out to have that instrumental aim? Only all of the great philosophers, all of the people that are focused on healing a community, yourself, mm-hmm. myself, et cetera. But again, it's a hard thing to remember when you're in that moment. Why is that? I think uh, I think we often struggle. So, I mean, if, if I want to boil it down, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I think the, the problem is we get off to the wrong foot right off the bat. So you meet a very first person. Majority of people in America, if not the West, you meet someone, and what's the first question you ask them? What are you passionate about? Oh, okay. Well, you're good. What's the question <laughs> most people ask? What you know, do you we, do? We ask, so what do you do, right? Mm-hmm. And that, that automatically sends a signal that the script we'll be using for today's conversation is work-only related. Mm-hmm. But humans are, are multifaceted creatures. And, you know, in the book, we dive into the research on multiplexity, getting to know people from multiple different angles to Ooh. build a deeper relationship with them faster. Mm-hmm. So we do that. So what do you do question? And then we've set the boundaries by what, by what we're defining sort of a useful conversation, right? And unless we find a reason to connect that's inside that work script, we move on or we feel like that was a waste of time, et cetera. In reality, like you said, I think what, you, what are you passionate about? What's, uh, what's ex- what exciting thing is going on in your life right now? That's a great question to start mm-hmm. off with. I, mm-hmm. I like to ask people who their favorite superhero is because um, mm. you can tell a lot about a person from a favorite superhero. But in general, just anything that sends that message that I want to get to know you as a broader person, not just this work-related script, you end up not only more likely to find a reason to connect, because now you're looking at it from multiple facets, but as you do, you build a deeper relationship faster. So what are the primary steps that people need to take in order to develop a, an approach to building social capital that's true and not... Not so dirty. Yeah, so I think, you know, we, we say it in the subtitle, I really like this concept of the hidden networks, which is uh, essentially a term I use for the uh, neglected networks, maybe a better term, but hidden's all mysterious, so we went with that. And, you know, the, the biggest ones are, and, and you know this from your work, are the weak and dormant ties, the people who are in your mm-hmm. life, but you're not super closely connected with them. Maybe you don't think they'll be all that useful. Um, maybe you just don't see them all that time. Like I, my, my avatar for a weak tie is like that guy that you work with, but he works on a different floor and you only ever see him if there's cake in the break room, right? That, that person that you know a little bit, but you don't know them too well. Mm-hmm. And then there's the dormant tie, which is someone you know, but you haven't talked to them in a long time. And, and if you think about a network as a three-dimensional object of lots of nodes and connections, those people that are weak and dormant ties are further away in the network than you are. So they have better access to new information, new potential referrals and introductions, et cetera. And so 
But I think the first habit to start building and accumulating social capital is to make a, a system of checking back with them often. Some of us have, I mean, the weak ties study, Granovetter study is about 50 years old and it's made its way into the networking advice books. But most people only apply it when they go, oh, I'm out of a job. And so now I need to go right. reunite my weak ties. And that's, that's not going to help you with the whole instrumentality thing we were talking about earlier. So making it a regular kind of habit to do that is sort of step one that I encourage a lot of people to do. And then the other, based on the research of sort of six degrees of separation, and if that's true, then there's a whole wealth of potential connections one introduction away. I actually like to ask the question, hey, who do you know in blank, with blank being whatever industry or sector or geography you want to get to know more? You're not asking for the introduction yet. Mm -hmm. You're not doing that thing where so many people do where you LinkedIn stalk people and see who they're connected to and then beg for an introduction to a specific person. That You're happens. trying to explore the, the, the edges of your network so you have a better idea. Hmm. So who do you know in... Who do you know in blank, with blank being whatever it is? So I'll, get, I'll give you an example. I have uh, no interest, at least at this time, of doing uh, a television show. But I am fascinated by certain hosts and certain people of, of certain, especially science-based shows. And they might be good potential stories for a future book or whatever. So I'm asking a lot of times in regular conversation, if I get the inkling that there might be something there, who do you know in television? Do you know anyone who works in television or in video production, et cetera? And I'm not asking for an introduction. I don't have a desperate need thing. I'm just trying to get a feel for the network that I'm in and how and who the right routes would be for that. And then I'm also trying to get a feel for what names come up most often mm -hmm. because those are going to be the ones that are probably going to be the easiest to connect with when the time comes. Uh, I do have a selfie that I took with Neil deGrasse Tyson. So if you're interested, we could talk more about that perhaps offline. That works. That that would, <laughs> especially if he's tagged in it, like on Instagram or something. That would be perfect. Uh, I think that got some play on social media. <laughs> uh, we were in the green room together at CBS this morning uh, a couple of years ago. That's another story, though. But I am just trying to help you here, David, uh, in in pursuing this interest because I could see you on TV. Um, <laughs> I think I've got a face for radio, but that's alright. <laughs> uh, so, so checking on on the the structure and you know dynamic shifts in your network do you have any advice about specific tools that are most helpful because there's a lot to tr to keep track of so when you say tools are you referring to technology i assume or uh yeah or some other methodology for being systematic about yeah. you know keeping keeping attuned to uh both the the you know the weak the dormant and of course the close ties yeah, so there's a couple tools that I really like. I, I shudder to name uh, a few because I don't want people to think that I'm like sponsored by them. But um, I'm a big fan of the, a tool called Contactually, which actually keeps track of your email inbox and outbox. And you can set it to remind you if I haven't talked to a certain person in 90 days or, or six months or whatever, send me a, a notification. But the truth is the most useful thing I find for most people is – I think we probably overemphasized social media for a really long time and now, you know, uh, obviously helped by things like Cambridge Analytica, we're sort of swinging back. But the truth is, I actually think that overcrowded newsfeed that's driving everyone crazy is actually a really good way to sort of organically keep track of those weak and dormant ties. That How do you mean? So, so imagine, you know, you're, you're scrolling through Facebook and you see these people and you're thinking, oh, or LinkedIn or Twitter, and you're thinking, oh, you know, I, don't, I barely ever talk to these people and I just want to get at, like, you know, the cat memes or whatever you're into Facebook for. But the truth is most of those notifications are broadcasts of things that are going on in people's life. I'm moving to Chicago. I just got a new job. Or we're finally taking a vacation to Maui or what have you, right? So 
what I think is these are a great opportunity. You see that, and they can become a very organic jumping off point for a deeper conversation. But don't click like and comment or reply, you know, mention in that medium because that's just going to get drowned out. But if I see someone says like, oh, I, I'm moving to Chicago because I'm taking a new job and I haven't talked to them in a long time, that's a good – I'll take the 90 seconds it takes to go to an email or a text message or a phone call and say, hey, you know, I just saw that you're doing this. Congratulations. Usually try and provide some value. So running with the Chicago example, we'll say, don't waste your time. Geno's East is the best deep dish in the city. So just go right there and stay there. Mm-hmm. And then maybe an invitation to, you know, be great if we could catch up or mm-hmm. I'll say something like what else is new, et cetera. So, you know, a lot of times it can feel like all of these things are overloading us. But the truth is a lot of them are filled with your weak ties, broadcasting information about them that you can use as a reason to check back in with them. So um, about family life, David, how does enriching your social capital and building out the sources of support that you need, how does that figure into your life beyond your career? Yeah, so this is a, a really interesting one that I was thinking about um, actually today because I knew we'd be, <laughs> we would be talking. And I also was encouraged by um, one of the editors at HBR to write a piece about, like, what does networking look like if you're a working parent, et cetera? And I, I think first it's an important point to think about that your, your network affects you in ways that go beyond professional success. I mean, there's some fascinating studies. I'm sure you're familiar with them with, from Christakis and Fowler that show even three degrees of separation out. There's influences in, in weight and happiness, et cetera. Uh, the truth is I think for a lot of people, you know, the, the family was – the original uh, support system, the original network, et cetera. I, I'm really fortunate in that um, I moved, I, I live in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which is not exactly the home of many super connectors, and I don't consider myself one. It's, it's not you know, New York or L.A., et cetera. But I, I moved here because I went out to go to school, and I, I met a girl, and her whole family and her whole support system is here. And uh-huh. so that sort of gets built in. But a lot of people, you move for work, uh, you choose to change cities, et cetera, and you have to sort of rebuild that. And I think we do this thing where we put work people in one bucket and family people in another. And not only does it uh, diminish how much time we could spend with potential good work contacts. So for example, the last time I was in Washington, D.C., I got together with a work friend of mine, but what we actually did was get our families together, right? And so it sort of counted as checking back in, but it was also great family time. And then the other thing I think we probably don't do enough of is the same rule of weak ties and checking back in with people that you care about and that are part of your family, uh, that extends to on that side. It's not just the work side. I, and this is somewhere, truthfully, mm-hmm. that I probably do poorly at is keeping in touch with the distant cousins, the, the uncles, et cetera, of our life. Because the, the truth is the network that's around you does have a dramatic effect on your happiness, and it doesn't just have to be this powerful work-related network. All right, David, uh, there are people calling the show right now saying, that's my cousin David. I don't know what he's talking about because I haven't heard from him in two years. So I know, right? What do I, tell, you- those, what do I tell cousin John? How did you find me? I don't know that I have a cousin. <laughs> uh, I made I that do, up. Never mind. Never mind. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean it. So this, this mm-hmm. is one area that we probably, I think we tend to overcorrect in. The, the irony is that in our close relationships, we know that intentionality is a good thing. In our distant relationships. What do you mean? What, what do you mean by intentionality is a good thing? Yeah. So, so I think about like my, I'm married, my wife. If I were to say like, oh, you know what? I forgot your birthday and I don't have a gift for you because I want it to be organic and natural and not intentional. That's not going to go over well. I might get away with that one year, but two mm. years in a row, it's not going to work. Um, and the truth is, I think we need to be as intentional about all relationships. The, the difference is sort of how much, but if the relationship matters to you, whether it's a work relationship or a life relationship, some amount of intentionality, scheduling, making a point to check in with them, et cetera, 
matters. And if it, if it doesn't, if you're just trusting it to organic, you're kind of signaling that it's so far out there in terms of strength of relationship. Um, and I, don't, I think there's a lot of people we accidentally put that far out that we don't want. So this does seem like a lot of work. And uh, I'm saying that here as a kind of devil's advocate. Uh, what, how do you advise people in terms of how much of their you know, waking hours to be focused on this, of course, crucial aspect of what it means to have a life of significance and, and support? Uh, you need people around you. Nobody gets anywhere on their own. Uh, how much of your time and attention ought to be devoted to thinking about checking back with uh, the ties that you already have and reaching out to new ones? Yeah, so this is where, I, again, I kind of think of social capital like other forms of capital, right? The, the, the amount you put in and the amount of time over which you put in are going to affect the compounding, right? Mm -hmm. So how much time you want to put in and how long you're going to wait both sort of matter. So I think there are some people that, you know, you're just in a new city and you need to build connections and you maybe don't even have work yet. So you're going to dedicate a huge amount of time to it. And there's others where you can kind of do it um, slowly and further over time. I, I encourage most people, this, this is the habit that I use. So I told you the sort of Facebook social media trick. Um, I try and do three things at least once a week. One is that, checking back in with a weak tie. Um, one is asking that question somewhere in a conversation, who do you know in blank? And then the third is introducing two people who are in my network so that I'm also being generous with my connections and my introductions, et cetera. All three of those things probably require less than 20 minutes in a week, right? Total. Might, yeah, total. I mean, it might take some, I don't, I don't think you should get in the point where you go like, oh no, it's Friday at 4.30 and I haven't done two of the three of these. And do, but at, if you start to kind of make it a habit, you'll mm -hmm. find that it comes sort of, all three of them come kind of naturally for me now. And they take you know, about that. Now that doesn't, that's, uh, that's an average week. Let's say there's always the idea of, okay, I need to actually make time to go to the dinners, to be at the conferences, etc. But I think if you're doing those three, you've got a pretty solid, you're not going to lose any of the momentum you gain when you do the other things that require a bit more time. Mm -hmm. And what else do you offer? Uh, did you discover in, in your search uh, through the literature on, on building social capital that is that we haven't talked about in the last minute or so here that you think is essential for listeners to know? So I really think um, that that idea of the multiple buckets thing is a, a phenomenon called multiplexity in network science, mm -hmm. that when you find more reasons to connect with people. And I think that a lot of people, again, put people in a work bucket or a life bucket, et cetera, and mm -hmm. then struggle to figure out how they're going to connect. People are multifaceted, and so you need to be multifascinated with them. And if you do that, mm -hmm. I think well, you'll like reach your capital over time. So to really be interested in who they are as people beyond the, the instrumental role that they might play in helping you in your career. Exactly right. And for a lot of times, the, the context in which you meet them is not the context in which you'll, de you'll develop your relationship. But you only learn that from exploring them from multiple facets. Yeah. So you have to be curious, right? And, and get over your own self-interest in the near term. Right. Exactly. Curious. And this is, I think, another reason people don't like those networking events is they think that they have to be interesting and fascinating. And the truth is you have to be interested in other people and fascinated in other people. You'll come off as more interesting anyway, but you'll build a better connection. And yet most people feel like they have to be bragging about where they've been and where they're going. Right. 
Right, exactly. I mean, what does most of the networking advice books do? They talk to you about how do you give an elevator pitch? How do you properly introduce yourself? How do you wow them in the first couple of seconds? And the best way to wow them is to demonstrate, I care about you. So, you know, I'm going to take an interest in you. So you, you encounter other people and they just start going on and on and on and on and on about how interesting they are. What do you do in that circumstance? <laughs> so... I think usually when they go on and on and on and on, they're usually going on in one context. So that's when I start to ask the deliberate, the deliberate pivot, right? Tell me about where you grew up or do you have children? Are you married, et cetera? And try and pivot to some other area where maybe they're not as polished. Hmm. So as to get more to the, to the other side. Yeah, to get more to the other side, but also to sort of, it's kind of like verbal judo, right? It takes them a bit off balance because now they don't have their whole thing practiced and they can't just keep going because you're asking a question they hadn't prepared for. And then how does that then convert to your gaining some long-term value in the, well, in your social network? And, so, and that, I promise that'll be my next to last question. <laughs> so again, I think it, what it, one of the things it does is encourage you to look at that person from multiple different angles, and often you can find that you can best provide value to them from a different angle. So for example, uh, you know, I just wrote a book. I'm trying to market this book. And one of the most useful people to me has been a friend who's been in the book marketing game for a really long time. I can't provide any reciprocal value because I don't know as much as he does. But we both have a love of an esoteric sport called Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which is a martial art. I can help him in that because I'm further along that road. And you only find whoa. that when you start to explore people from a couple different angles. You're a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu person? Uh, I am. I am. Wow. I, I'm so glad I'm your friend, I hope, David, <laughs> and not your friend of me. You know what I'm saying? That's, that's true. That's, that's probably accurate. <laughs> I do but. not want to mess with David Burkus. All right, here's my last question. All right. And I've been asking everybody this who's been on the show this year because I think it's an important issue that we all need to be thinking about. How do you bring compassion into your working life? You know, I think, I think the biggest thing is I, I think we probably need to double down on this idea that whatever sides there are, the other side is not wrong. In, in the book, we dive into the principle of homophily, the idea that like attracts like, and over time, as you gravitate towards that, your network serves you more people who are self-similar. And it takes a very deliberate and a, uh, effort to get out of that, and that deliberate effort starts with a realization that no one has the market cornered on truth, and therefore, I probably need to listen to all sides. To, to adopt a, a, a real spirit of inquiry and mutual learning. Yeah, no, exactly right. And even if I end up disagreeing at the end of it, at least I have a better idea of the argument. Mm -hmm. and, and perhaps you've made a human connection that you might not have otherwise. Yeah, no, and we go back to that multiplexity idea. If I'm just looking at them as a partner in the argument, that's one facet. But if I take the time to be interested and understand uh, them further, then I learn another facet. And I find, oh, actually, we agree over here. We just see each other as polar opposites on this one issue. Mm -hmm. That's a way to grow connections, especially with people who are different. And that's such an important aspect of what it means for us to be connecting the world and, and really making a difference in it. There's a, much more about that and so much more in your wonderful new book, Friend of a Friend. David, Thank you so much for being my guest tonight. How can listeners find out more about your work and, and your great new book? Yeah, so, I mean, the, the best place, it's your show, you do an awesome job, is on the websites for this show, but they could also go to davidberkus.com. From there, we've got a ton of resources from the book, links to where you can connect with it, and also links to sort of social media tags. So, Cousin John, if you're listening, that's probably the best way to get a hold of me. <laughs> 
Thank you so much, David. It's really been fun catching up with you again. I'm, I'm really glad you joined me on the show again, and I hope when your next book comes out, you'll come back. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.